What's up, family? It's your boy, Daniel James II. I'm your host right here on Black Voices on the Hill. Black Voices on the Hill is a podcast and radio show for the culture. We center Black lives, amplify Black stories, and enhance the Black experience at Cornell University, Greater Ithaca, and beyond. Black Voices on the Hill topics range from racism, police brutality, colorism, sexism, to Greek life leadership, and white elitism in the Ivy League. We do Black Voices on the Hill envisions a Cornell that's sensitive to the plight of its Black students, aware of the Black excellence in this college town, and unabashed about them changing the world. We see Black excellence at Cornell. We believe in Black empowerment, and we love the Black experience. Listen, Black Voices on the Hill is brought to you by WVBR News. To see when more new and upcoming episodes and for other Ithaca news, be sure to follow us at Black Voices on the Hill. Be sure to follow WVBR FM News on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Visit WVBR.com slash Black Voices. Subscribe. Leave us a rating, a review. Tell us what you thought of this episode after the conclusion. You can tell Alexa, I want to hear Black Voices on the Hill. Listen, tune in right here on WVBR 93.5 every Friday at 2 p.m. And the podcast releases on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. on all platforms. Listen, y'all. Um, before I talk about and introduce my guest, uh, I just want to say this is sort of like a, a Black Voices Off the Hill episode, um, not just because I'm not in Ithaca, but because um, this person uh, is is very, very special, I guess, to the Ivy League world, but is not necessarily a student at Cornell University. Uh, today, I have in the studio, I, I'm, I'm just... I'm graced with the opportunity to have met some awesome people through this journey. Uh, and uh, he really did not have to say yes to this person. He, he's super busy. But I have the first black student body president in Yale's 318-year history. I'm elected at only 18 years old, 19 years old. Uh, he's a viral black educator, just awesome black young man, taking the culture by a storm. I have none other than Mr. Khalil Green. What's good, Khalil? I'm good. How are you? Doing pretty well, man. Doing pretty well. Listen, I just want to start off sort of asking you because I was looking at sort of just how things have progressed with you personally over the past year. I mean, you have a lot, a large following, right? Um, You've been featured in LA Times, Washington Post, uh, New York Times, Harvard Business Review, you name it. You've been featured in it. What does it feel like right now to have the work you're doing sort of reach the masses, I guess? Yeah. Um, I think it's very, I think, fun for me. Like, I like doing this work um, and I'm able to have it become my main, like, job and profession when I graduate, which I'm very excited about. Um, and I know that not everyone has the opportunity and I didn't necessarily always have that path forward either. But I think now that there's such a large audience that does and listen to what I say, um, I'm really excited about like thinking of new things or having things that have been on my mind for a long time. Um, finally be able to like have the the platform to to reach a lot of people. And I think like when you have a lot of ideas, which a lot of arguments, a lot of critiques in the world, um, you want to share it with people. And I'm lucky that I get that opportunity to do so. No, I absolutely love that. Uh, you definitely, through what you do on TikTok, Instagram, um, you definitely critique a part, parts of the culture I don't even think about on a regular basis, um, but you bring that to our sort of forefront. But one of the things, uh, the videos that I watched, what well, really you did too, um, that really, really struck home for me, you talked about um, Black father absenteeism and the, the myth around that narrative. 
And, uh, you know, growing up, I don't know if y'all uh, grew up with the same television I grew up with, but we used to watch, uh, you know, Mari, Jerry Springer, things like that. And that was really like fun or entertaining uh, per se. Uh, but I really think about sometimes, you know, also based on what you shared um, through that video that you did and educating others about it in the ways in which it did reproduce a lot of negative stereotypes that are just untrue about Black culture, Black fathers, Black family, et cetera. I guess what made you, and, and you don't see a lot of people highlighting that as much. Uh, how did you come to realize, I don't know, Black fatherhood in that moment, like deciding this is something I need to educate the culture about? How do you decide that in general? But then like, how'd you decide that for that video that you made, those videos that you made about that? Yeah, so a lot of it is um, from my personal experiences and my mom loves watching them or I don't know if she loves, but she's always watching Maury um, and Jerry Springer and Steve Wilkos. And I, I think those are the main ones in that sort of like you are that you are not the father sort of brand of, of reality TV. Um, and I was just like, this is so problematic, especially because they're all white, like the leaders of the show like the talk host the talk show hosts and like most of the people that were guests on there were i mean all of them were probably very like poor or, like low income um but most of them were black um maybe like secondary to that were like white and then maybe tertiary to that were latino um so it was like very much focused on this sort of like classist and racist portrayal of these different like groups so specifically the black and latino groups in terms of race um, just because it would lead into a lot of stereotypes and like um, like they would glorify or not glorify, but they would um, sort of mock people's names and like heighten behavior and incentivize a lot of behaviors that were in line with racial stereotypes. Um, and there are people that commented after I made that video and it went viral on TikTok that they had either known someone. I don't know if anyone exactly had been on themselves. I think one person said they did. Um, and like they were like told by the producers, just like be uninhibited, like be really expressive, like more, maybe worse words than that, but just generally just to like hype up the drama. Um, and that's a very irresponsible thing to do, especially when the drama that is at the core of this TV reality show is like a huge social, social and like political um, like issue that people are trying to tackle because it's a real life thing. So I just think that those shows are so problematic and you look at the marketing, they use like, oh, like this is on fleek or like I'm dropping my new album, like Maury will have a picture of himself on the album, which is very much obviously callbacks to things that are significant in black culture. So just because of all these things at one time, I was like, this is ridiculous. Can you please get rid of the Maury show? I'm not into cancel culture, but let's cancel the Maury show because it's been on for just too long. <laughs> Y'all heard what Khalil said, cancel Maury. Uh, I just want to ask too, like how many takes does it take or how much like research, et cetera, goes behind making these videos? Because uh, it looks very seamless, but I, I assume there's like a lot that goes into it. Yeah, so it depends on each video. I think the more unfamiliar with like the data and the stories that I'm looking at, the more research I have to do. Um, but the more familiar I am, the less. So like even something for, I would say, like the thing that I just maybe had to do the least research on was probably like the MLK quote, which is my first one. So I did like look up the quote because I quoted a piece of MLK, said how he was whitewashed and showed that like he disagreed with a lot of the white moderates of today. Um, and that I just had to look up for a quote and that was like so easy. But then for one, there was like a larger argument like COVID in the Tuskegee experiment. I had to like look up 
Tuskegee experiment, look up COVID, I did look up all these things. And also I think you learn a lot during the research too. And then you compile it to a three minute video, which is very hard to do because you have to choose very carefully what you do and don't include. And then how you like go from one fact to like a statement to the next fact without like losing any logical ties between one thing that you say and another thing. Um, so I think that's where the, the research really comes in. It's like when there's a longer form, larger argument with a bunch of different sort of stories, examples, and facts that you have to include. Yeah, that sounds like no um, small task at all. Uh, that's why I, I'm barely on TikTok. I just like consuming <laughs> people's videos and content. Yeah. So, um, but I love that. Listen, I, I sort of, I just want to highlight the fact, y'all, if you're watching this video, you see this glare on my glasses. It's just because my glasses obviously don't have anti-glare. So I just want to highlight that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it is right in my, in my face. But um, anyway, moving along, Khalil, I sort of introduced you at the beginning but I want to sort of just allow you to talk about your roots and where you're from, you know, shout out your neighborhood, I guess, and just tell us who Khalil Green is. Cause I, I still don't feel like I did you justice, but yeah, tell us like the basics, where you from my guy. And you can also give us like the basics of what your major is at Yale, stuff like that, um, et cetera. So. Yeah. Um, so I'm from Germantown, Maryland, which fun fact is, it fluctuates, but at the time that I last looked, it was the fifth most diverse place in America. Um, so I like grew up around a lot of diversity. Both of my parents are from New York. Um, and then ancestrally, ancestrally, my dad's side of the family um, are like Black Americans from Georgia. Um, and my mom's side of the family, her dad immigrated here from Jamaica in the 1950s. Um, so like a dual, I guess, heritage there, but definitely identify, I think just from my lived experience with the black American culture and identity. Um, and I think that was something that was really important growing up just because the place I went to was like less than 5% white the elementary and middle schools. Um, so they're mostly like black and Latino, um, maybe like 40% Latino, 30% black. And then like the rest, maybe like the Asian and then white was like the least demographic. Um, and it's because our, our county, like the county I live in is very segregated. So like there are parts of the county that are like very rich, white in the East Asian affluent, but like my middle and elementary school weren't like that, but it's not a sob story. Like those are the best times in my life. That's the only time I really enjoyed schools when I was with my friends who were like actually of color. Um, and then when I went to high school, I had to go to a magnet school or I applied and tested into a magnet school that my parents really urged me to go to, um, on the other side of the county where it was like all white and Asian students and the program that I was in specifically was a STEM magnet program. And for anyone who doesn't know, magnet programs, they're public schools, like they're publicly funded, um, but they act almost as if like they're private schools and that like it's exclusive based on a test, I guess, instead of wealth. Um, and there's like a whole different curriculum and educational system you go into. I think magnet schools are still problematic. I'm, I abolish all magnet schools. We'll get into that later. But that was where I went into as a high schooler. Um, and after that experience, it was really tough. I was the only black kid in the program that I was in. People that were super racist, mostly Asian students. And then after that, like white students, I'd say. Um, and I was like tough through that. I, I just, from that path, it was a STEM program. I thought I wanted to go to MIT. So MIT was my dream school for a long time. And then I applied and I visited and I just saw it was like very similar to my high school. Like the demographics were similar, the like anti-socialness was similar. But also academic topics I really just wasn't in love with. Like STEM is just not my passion. 
um, and the culture around STEM is not my thing, like grinding multiple hours to figure out a, a line of code doesn't appeal to me. So I went to Yale instead and I, I started out as CS just to try to hold on to that. And one time I was doing a piece set and looked out the window and saw all my friends talking and socializing. I was like, this is not going to work. So I switched my major immediately to like econ. And then I went to poli sci because econ still had like math and coding. And then I was like, even poli sci had a little bit too much like numbers for me. So I just switched to history because like only numbers are the dates. I just like talking. I like writing. I like reading. I like thinking about things. I like being able to apply what I'm learning in classrooms to conversations I'm having with people all over the world. Um, so I've ended on history, specifically the history of social change and social movement. Um, and that pretty much is my like academic background slash like journey. Hello, you sound like me, uh, in your major hunting, you, you ran away from, from math. Um, yeah. that's, that's not one of my specialties. I know that, um, I, uh, my major is industrial and labor relations and we had to take two econs and I think a statistics, man, that was like the worst like these this has been the word and that was only three classes but it's just like yeah i definitely r- ran away from from math or anything like that mm-hmm. stemmy uh in my whole i like to read and write so that's that's all mm-hmm. uh you talked about being in a majority minority or majority underrepresented i guess identity school mostly black and um, brown students school that was like some of the best times of your life and then you're now at Yale, which is like predominantly white. Uh, I guess, you know, sometimes I talk to a lot of students because most of my friends had that same experience, right? They came from, I, I came from predominantly black high school, predominantly, well, predominantly like middle school. And then my first year of high school was predominantly black. And uh, most of my friends, same experience, but then they sort of traded it off for this, you know, being all of a sudden a minority, right? And they experienced this awakening, um, in terms of their identity, like for the first time you have to address, um, I don't know, not just racism, but also like anti-black racism. It's not you didn't experience it before, but it's like you have to address it, I guess, institutionally. And it intersects with every part of where you, you're not just a student at court, but at Yale or whatever school you go to, you're a black student. And that becomes very apparent. Why make that trade off, I guess, for a, you know, because you could have gone to, you know the Harvard of HBCUs, you could go to Howard, you could go, you know, anything. So what, what do you think you benefited, how you benefited uh, being at Yale as opposed to some other institution where you might not have had as many barriers in your, you know, education? Yeah, I think, I mean, well, I made the decision to apply to high schools when I was 16 and I made a decision what school high school to go to when I was 17. So I think my perspective has changed a lot since then. And at the time, um, especially in the environment that I was in, like the main narrative was like, you have to go to an Ivy League. Like there was no other option. There was no other thought. There was no like guidance counselor that was like, oh, like maybe you want to apply to these or something. It's like Ivy League or bust or like, I guess MIT, I guess it counts as well. Um, so I think I was very tunnel visioned in that way, just from that perspective. Um, and I thought like the only path to success was to go to a school like Yale. So like I just shot for it. And also just like generally speaking, like, socially among students like there's this hyper competitiveness um and social pressure manifests in a lot of different ways depending on what high school environment you're at sometimes there's pressure to like do drugs or go to parties or whatever the case may be but in these toxic magnet schools which once again need to go um the, the pressure is to get into like an ivy league right so like that was the only thing on my mind there was no thought otherwise there was no conversation in my head like it was just natural it was the only path forward 
Um, so, I mean, I, I came to Yale. I, I went to a pre-orientation program my first week at Yale, like before classes started. So I, and that pre-orientation program is called Cultural Connections. And that's where like a lot of the Black and Latino XYZ kids go to right before a class starts um, in terms of like school starts as a freshman. So I met like my best friend and most, if not all of my friends there anyways. And I think it's different between college and high school because I mean, yeah, if you go to class, so you're going to be surrounded by whatever demographic is representative there, but like you don't have to talk to people you go to class with and same way you do with high school. Cause like high school is class, 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 lunch, class, 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 sport, go home. And like, you're like, you're kind of like with the, those people all day and it's a small group. Whereas Yale is like class, your dorm, whatever you want, lunch, class, maybe again, and then like parties and extracurriculars. So you can craft your surroundings, I think a lot more. So I was in like something called the Black Men's Union. And most of the ones, again, all my friends were of color anyway. So even if I wasn't in a class, we all sit together. It's like, there's a book called Why Are the Black Kids Sing Together in the Cafeteria? Like in the dining halls, like it would just be us. So I crafted this very sort of like insular um, experience at Yale. And I think of the times where I did have to branch out like for student government, it was an hour of a day. So it doesn't really count, I'd say. I mean, that's just been my experience though. So I haven't like had this insanely integrated experience. Got you. Listen, you said like two or three times, um, get rid of magnet schools. Listen, obviously you have something on your chest you need to let go. Uh, give us the rundown. I guess like, um, I shout out to my professor, um, Anna Haskins. I was in a class um, called Intro to Social Inequalities. I think it was. We talked a lot about magnet schools, boarding schools. I did go to boarding school for three years and and I've had friends that have said get rid of magnet schools and boarding schools so I guess tell us give us the rundown Khalil why we need to get rid of magnet schools and boarding schools yeah so I'm going on what's it called like to make a video or something or a slideshow or something about this soon enough and the idea really just sparked my head yesterday because I saw this article about New York and how they were starting to get like weed out their magnet schools and I mean, I think lived experience is like one of the best informants of, of someone's perspective. So I didn't go to boarding school and I can't really comment on that. But I think like what they specifically, specifically egregious thing about magnet schools is that they're publicly funded, right? So like even in the worst case scenario of like how problematic boarding and private schools are, like it's someone else's dime, you know, like it's the repercussions are felt by society, but at least you're paying for it. Magnet schools are paid for like the taxpayers of regular students who are not even going to those magnet schools or like those magnet programs. Um, so I think that makes it just especially weird. I'm sure, I don't know if there actually is, but like I want to look at the implications of like this Brown v. Board of Education and saying that public, publicly institution, public institutions can't be segregated and looking at the data of magnet schools and like seeing if there's some sort of breach there, because I think there is. But basically the reason why magnet schools are just so problematic is that they assess students based on like their version of your gifted and talented or you're like accelerated or you're more academically prepared than other students and the premise is that they're fulfilling these students need for like more education and more learning but the reality is that they're giving them a huge advantage for the rest of their lives right like i probably have not been at yale had I not gone to that magnet school um, a lot of the students in those magnet programs like get internships like that's a part of it or like we get like these crazy experiences of like going to actual science facilities and laboratories that other students aren't getting and it's more of a stratification of experiences 
rather than like trying to meet this need for students who can handle more work. I think in a like ideal reality, the education system as it is, is just like really messed up in that like if a certain student can memorize 10 different facts about history and another student can, then just because they memorize those facts, they're getting like put in these like extra rigorous programs. Whereas I feel like the learning inherently should be more tailored as is so that those students who aren't necessarily able to memorize facts, whatever the case may be, are like getting some sort of ability or like at their own pace um, learning that that is tailored to the experiences that might be like, oh, like research something that you're interested in and present that using this sort of methods that we learn in class, like more adaptive learning, right? Like just across the board, as opposed to all the learning across the board is so uniform and that those few kids that like can handle this uniform work, which always in most, I'm going to say like always, I'm, I'm at least in Montgomery County are like majority white and East Asian students who have a certain background, um, either in terms of like teachers, experiences and like hyping students up or like familial background or wealth in a lot of cases they're getting this sort of stamp of we're like more academically better than other students and then they're getting on the trajectory to do better in life and i think that's just very problematic because it really is a form of segregation like modern day segregation or de facto segregation that stratifies resources especially academic resources in a very problematic way in my opinion yeah that's all facts uh, it's all facts i think uh one of the main readings that i think um that really really struck with me from this class um shout out again professor anna haskins who's now uh, who was a professor at cornell but now she's at notre dame one of the readings that we had to read for her class was about um taking essentially taking black kids and placing them into these magnet um these magnet programs or magnet schools or private schools even. And, you know, a lot of these kids come from low, low income neighborhoods or come from, you know, places that are more disenfranchised. And it basically studied and proved that like putting them in this educational, you know, uh, space does not a wholesale improve their lives um, just by being there. And it, it definitely, even though it maybe gives them that edge, um, a lot of students, when they come into these these uh, atmospheres and these settings, um, because they don't have, like you were saying, the access to wealth or even the familial ties, the social, um, the social wealth or social privilege, or um, haven't been assessed in the same ways that these kids are being assessed or, or have grown up their entire lives being assessed, uh, they have a hard time adjusting to these institutions. And I thought that that was um, interesting and also just made me reflect on how much uh, in my life I feel like education my mom growing up just as like a university kid my mom like it was it was that's a place of privilege that I feel like a lot of kids even though I'm from the rural south didn't have so um th thank you for that that uh, insight into that Khalil and I'm waiting on that video too uh Khalil uh wanna I want to talk a little bit about um, boys and girls club I um I remember everything in my freshman year of college i'll just share a quick story i um everything pretty much fell through fell through when it comes to internships that year i like had nothing to do and it was like may so i was like all right i'll just go home and get a job i guess i get a job and so around the corner from my house 
is a um, shout out to the Boys and Girls Club of North Florida. And, you know, I've gone on to have like internships afterwards and stuff, but I can still say that was the best work experience, not just the impact that I felt, because I don't feel like I made any impact compared to the impact and the impression that those kids left on me. Um, Mm -hmm. Number one, all black and black boys and girls. So that's what that's one thing. And then just in terms of uh, seeing I don't know, like I hadn't been, most of these kids went to the same elementary schools, middle school that I went to. And just seeing that the, the challenges that they're facing um, and, and it being so, so concentrated in this center for the summer and just having them every single day, um, I, I created the closest bonds with those kids. But you yourself, I mean, you've just done so much contribution to um, the Boys and Girls Club. You're on like the Hall of Fame for the one in Greater Washington. Talk a little bit because I'm assuming you didn't just work for one or fundraise for one, but you also you were a product of Boys and Girls Club, right? Um, so talk a little bit about the impact that BGCs have in your life. Um, yeah, talk about that. Yeah. Um, so I my brother started going to Boys and Girls Clubs before I went to school. Um, my brother is like seven years older than me. And at the time they were just like a part of like this, like they had a very small facility in like the back of the school and they got like their own building, um, maybe about a mile or so, or maybe a little bit less than a mile away from like our school and like our house. Um, at the time you had to be about seven to start going to the boys and girls clubs. And I think that was the second grade for me. So from the time I was seven to about when I was 14, which is when I had to leave to the Magan school on the other side of the county. So there were no buses to go to the boys and girls clubs before, after school. Um, I just went there every day. So I went there from for before school programs um, throughout elementary school and then summer camps throughout most of those years. And then also after school, I think like throughout that entire time. So, and that's like multiple hours a day, if not like more than at least the same that I was in actual school like throughout the year especially if you count the summer camp hours um so it was a huge part of my child development at the time i was there i want to say it was like eight easily 80 and 90 percent black kids and then maybe like a few other minority groups and then like very few white students um once again so it was like a very diverse it's not diverse but very black centered and like black focused place um and the staff are mostly like either black or latino um and I think just growing up with that environment, it was just a very fun place. Like we got to play like dodgeball and like learn basketball and like um, soccer, like all of these things I just learned from Boys and Girls because I was so young when I was there. And like they just teach you very fundamental skills. Um, like you do homework and reading and writing and there's like performance stuff, and, like multicultural events. And it's just a really good place, I think, to go, especially like when you're a kid. Um, and the summer camp was definitely the highlight. Like it was just so much fun. Like I remember the first year that I did summer camp is when Soldier Boy um like drop the crank that song um so i remember just learning that when i was like eight and i still all like i'll be at a party at yale and like the song will come on people will just start like swaying i'm like you guys don't know this like it's just very it's very interesting to see like how culture is reproduced and passed down and i think for me poison coast was one of those places um so i'm very grateful for that and just like if you look back on what it actually serves to do like you only have to pay 50 dollars or something for an entire year's worth of programming um, so it's a nonprofit, like it's like a, it's, it's very much like a social service, um, that that's being provided, um, 
obviously it's like its own organization, but it's, it's being provided through this organization. And I think as you go get older, like the teachings become more evidently like tailored towards marginalized communities. Right. So like there's something when you're in the teen center or a teenager that's called like I drive smart, which is just about driving safe and like not being distracted driving and not drinking while driving. Um, there's another one where we learn about like AIDS and safe sex practices and HIV um, and, and other STDs and like how to avoid them and stuff like that. Um, we learn about like drug usage and stuff like that as well. So I think like as like it goes from, okay, you're learning how to draw and color to like you're learning like not to do drugs, which I think is like a really important transition that like you kind of can really, really learn a lot from, especially if you're there for multiple years. So I think for that reason, it's just been a big part of my life. And now that I'm like older, like I work with Boys and Girls of Greater Washington, especially for like fundraising um, and programming. I got to teach the kids about like electoral politics and um, criminal justice, like pre-George Floyd and pre-Trump. So it was like especially timely. And um, I'm also working with like the America's Promise Alliance, which is like this large umbrella organization that houses the National Boys and Girls Clubs, as well as the National like Boy Scouts and YMCA and Girl Scouts of America and like Big Brother, Big Sister. So like now I'm just working with a lot of different youth organizations at a very strategic high level just to see like how can we adapt them for the future and make sure that they're also tailored to this increasingly digital world. Because when I was in Boys and Girls Club for the first time, I don't even think YouTube was really out, but like you see that transition as you get older. Well, those kids, they love computer lab now uh, at, yeah. uh, at Boys and Girls Club. So it's huge. Uh, listen, I've talked to um, Noah Harris. Um, I talked to, and now you. And uh, one of the questions I asked him was about this idea of being first. 381 years is a long time for Yale to not have ever had a black student body president. Um, just to let y'all know. So, how does that feel to be first? Do you see being first as an accomplishment or um, or it possibly could be a personal one, but do you feel like it's an accomplishment or do you feel like it's more so a critique of Yale? Yeah, I mean, I think it's both. I'm not going to like lean too far on either side. Maybe if anything, I lean on like the critique side, but I mean, it definitely was a personal accomplishment. Like I was very excited when I got it. Um, and at the time it was like, oh, like this is like, you know, like it's like nice, um, especially after like the whole social media virality of it all. Like there's no way, especially because I was 19 at the time, like, there's no way I'm not going to be proud of that. You know what I'm saying? Um, but at the end of the day, like 318 years is a long time, especially in recent years. Like there's no really excuse. Like the past 10 years, it could have been a black one, especially. But it's it's very much i think it's a critique of yale but also like yale student government as a specific organization um and like there's there's stratifications of like the elitism of certain clubs so there's like the yale daily news which is like our news organization is like the yale political union which is like a political one there's like yale democrats which is our like lobbying one and then there's like ycc which is the yale college council which is a student government and i think like there's a lot of black people in yale i'm sure people like black people generally at yale but like it goes to show that when in these elite organizations, there's like no path up and there's no sort of like support network because they're so cutthroat and toxic and like really like stressful to be a part of um, in every single way. And like if you're black, you don't have like the mentor to like guide you through or like even the will or wanting to even stay in a place like that. Um, I just did because I just I mean, I saw a specific need. I had experience in student government. So I was like, I'm like, I'm going to like go for it. 
Um, but the fact that no one was empowered to make that move or even those who were just weren't set up to be successful in doing it, I think is a huge issue. Um, I also think there's like personal like sorts of traits of a student government leader that that probably existed, uh, that definitely existed in a lot of black students before, but they just like they just didn't want it. Why would you want to apply to student government? You know what I'm saying? Like there's so many other amazing things you can do. So I think it's just like a, a critique of all of those things. And I mean, now I think less and less about it every day, to be honest. Like obviously it's something that comes up on social media. And luckily I got the Maryland citation, um, like from the literal government of Maryland, which is really cool. I'm very happy about it. But like now I'm on my TikTok phase. It's like every era, like artists have like different eras and it's like, oh, like this thing, this thing. It's like, I enjoyed that. But once again, I did it when I was a teenager and I just find a lot of other things much more important, much more like fulfilling for me. And that was more of a phase it was literally a, like a one year, a little bit over a year's term. Um, and now I don't even really, it's not on my social media, like at the top or the bio, the way it used to be. And it comes up and I like always acknowledge it, but I think I'm like moving on to other things now. I feel you. He's in his next phase. Uh, just before we move on from that, I just want to ask you, uh, you know, you did a lot of fundraising and things. I mean, during that time, especially, uh, and and I feel like your your leadership was probably cut short a lot by pandemic or at least some way blighted. I guess what have been sort of the ripple effects of your leadership on Yale's campus? Yeah. That's the last question I asked yeah. about that. No, I like that question because I'm very proud. Like I, I was not, I think there's a very much, I don't know, stereotype or just like general consensus that student government does nothing, at least in most cases and in most schools. Um, I was not planning on having that be my legacy, especially not as the first black student body president. So we got a lot of things done. If anyone wants to see on my Instagram, there's like a list of 70 proposals that we successfully pushed through. But I'll say like the highlights of them were, we raised $57,000 one week after George Floyd's murder um, for racial justice organizations, both in the city of New Haven, so that we're addressing the issue in a local way, but then also like nationwide and in Minneapolis. Um, we instituted four like major mental health and counseling reforms. So we instilled walk-in appointments because before the appointments, you had to call like ahead of time and wait multiple weeks. Um, but we had like this feature where you can like walk in and just get a mental health and counseling appointment, which is really important for students' mental health. Um, we cut the wait time just generally down by 50%. Um, and we added like over 40 new caretakers and clinicians that can serve as mental health um, uh, assistance at any time for students. Um, and then we also made it so that you can see clinician bios. So you can find someone who is like of your same identity or ethnicity or whatever the case may be that can tailor towards the issues that you might be facing. Um, and I would say like, the third probably big one um, is that we campaigned so that Yale would remove all grades because um, a lot of schools like had done it or a lot of schools the president decided for them, but Yale, they were going to say no to doing it in the same way that I think Princeton did. But we did, led this huge campaign called No Fail Yale um, alongside a lot of student organizers. Um, and I did a debate in front of every single Yale college professor against like a philosophy professor, like at least present my argument against theirs on why we should keep or why we should remove grades while they were saying they should keep grades and the first vote, like the preliminary one came out like 33% were on my side and like 67 were on his side. And then after the speech I gave, it voted 55% my way, 45% their way. Um, and we successfully passed the first time in Yale's history that they removed grades. And Yale's where grades were invented, just like throughout the entire world, like the first system to have that. So it was just kind of even poetic and, and insane in that way. 
And then there's like 70 other things. And I think the main thing that I would say is like my legacy is just Yale student government. Like they were pretty much the ops. Like they would, there was a protest. They would tell the university about it. Um, there was a campaign to get Yale to remove the name of the slave owner on one of the buildings and student government at the time was nowhere to be found. The president that I talked to at the time was like, this is a touchy issue. There's right and wrong. But obviously like, especially being a black student, I'm like, there's no right or wrong. Like you just, you're, you're not, they're generally were spineless, right? Like they were generally spineless. So I just didn't like that at all. So I just wanted to make sure that I was like really in touch and in proactive about supporting student movements on campus, whether they be around climate change or black racial justice or Yale's financial investment in the city of New Haven um, and austerity, whatever the case may be. And I think that's my legacy is like I merged student government and activism in a very tangibly impactful way, very strategic way. And I think that's what I like left with the Yale. And now every student government candidate has to answer how they feel about all the student movements and how they're gonna help activists because there's no separation anymore. Absolutely. Um, I love the way you answered that. I think that uh, definitely from what I've gleaned, your uh, leadership has definitely been, and not just at Yale, but just the arc of your life is like proactivity, getting being ahead of the curve, uh, preventative as, as opposed to like prophylactic. I think that that's awesome. Uh, also, congratulations on your um, your citation from the state of Maryland. I mean, come on, like that's absolutely groundbreaking breaking and just awesome. Um, you mentioned uh, crank that challenge earlier. I meant to tell you um, that's going to be relevant later. So just um, at the end. So I was listening to this. This is more, I guess, like a future question. Instead of asking you, like, what do you want to do with your life? I guess because you stand so firmly for racial equity and justice, my question for you in terms of the future is, because I was listening to this, uh, this interview uh, of this lady. Her name's Latasha Brown. She founded uh, Black Voters Matter. And she was saying that, if we can't imagine a world without racism, we'll never, we'll never see it. We'll never see it, right? And uh, I guess just being who you are, what does a country uh, without racism look like for you? And how do your plans or your life plans, how do you plan in the future to bring that vision about? I know that's a big question. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, a country without racism would probably lack two things. One is like the resource disparities um, that racism creates. And then also the second is like the ideologies and stereotypes. So I think it would there would be an equal distribution, if not equitable distribution of wealth and health outcomes and like ownership of land and jobs and positions and all of those across ethnicities, like the rate would be similar. Um, if not the same of like poverty across different racial groups or billionaires across racial different groups, whatever the case may be. And then I think the second thing is like in this resource equalized or whatever world, um, there wouldn't be stereotypes about people based on their race. There would be no like, oh, you're black, so you're a criminal. Um, there'd be no like sort of arrest just for someone's skin color, their culture or something like that. So I think there would be a fair distribution of resources and then a lack of stereotypes against different racial groups. So the way you answer that, um, I think that, that that's also ideologies, institutions. I think that those are two things to think about too. So the end of this episode, since you're like a, a Gen Z educator, um, that's what it says in your bio, I believe. I think that I want to put it to the test 
Khalil. So these are not. So this little segment, I guess I might call it like black facts or something like that. But oh, essentially, God. these four things, they're super easy, like so easy. But it's, it's more so for the audience. But like, you know, a lot of these things you've already kind of talked about. Uh, all of these are pretty much black firsts, um, except like the last one. But most of them are black firsts. So the first blah, 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 first to do this, except. OK, OK, you got this. So you ready? All right. First one, uh, first black woman to be elected to the U.S. Congress. Shirley Chisholm. Shirley Chisholm. All right. Um, this person was the first African-American and black woman to win an Academy Award. Uh, it was for Best Supporting Actress in 1940 in the film Gone with the Wind. Oh, my gosh. Um, she played like the Mary, the Mammy character. Uh-huh. <sighs> Why am I blinking on her name? Oh, this is actually, I'm not so, stressed because I know who it is. I'm just forgetting her name. Um, Hattie, no, 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 it's, yeah. it's not. Yeah, Hattie, Hattie something. Uh, her last name had, has my first name in it. Hattie McDaniel? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Hattie McDaniels. So uh, the third one you talked about, uh, so I'm not going to give it away, but uh, this was the first black rapper I would say that really, you know, he, he in a in a Breakfast Club interview, he was like, Drake, Drake, you know, and uh, he really like claims he did the first everything, to be honest. But he definitely was like the first to popularize uh, YouTube, I feel like, as a platform for rap artists and just artists in general. You know who that is? Soldier Boy. Soldier Boy. Crank yeah. That, crank that Soldier Boy. Yes. The last one would be, because you just flew through these, um, is that. Can you name at least three black towns uh, that featured the, this was kind of dark, to be honest, but the, the expulsion or like destruction of three black towns that existed um, essentially before they were destroyed by like white rage. Can you name three? Um, I know Tulsa. Mm -hmm. I'll say Seneca Village in New York City. Yeah. And then um, Bruce's beach in california ah there we go all right that's it that's it Khalil. Ah, um, i wish yeah. you had some. <laughs> that's a good start to my morning i'll like be more attentive in class now <laughs> there we go um man i just want to sort of end are there any sort of last words or any you want to shout out the dmv i guess maybe or anything like that um yeah give us give us grace us with some last words Khalil. Yeah. Um, well, I thank you for this interview. I, oh my gosh, like this is a Monday morning for me, but this is like a, <laughs> a Monday morning for me. Um, so this was, this was great. Thank you everyone for listening. Um, I will be continuing to put out more content specifically around cultural propagation. So if anyone's really interested in that topic, definitely check out what I'm, what I'm going to post. Um, I say like Leah, shout out to MoCo specifically, um, Montgomery County, Maryland and, uh, I would say if, if there's anything else I want to say to anyone, like always learn logic, learn how to read and write, learn how to critically think for yourself. Don't recite talking points, even if it's around race or something that you know is right. Don't just say things that other people are saying just to like, just because they sound nice, like actually understand what you're saying and test your own logic and debate people if you want to. But just don't repeat what other people are saying, like just think for yourself. That's why like my number one sort of mantra right now. That's some great advice, Khalil. Khalil, how can we stay in touch with you on social media and things like that? 
Yeah. Follow my Instagram at Khalil.green. That's my main thing. Um, my TikTok is at Khalil Green, but I'm using TikTok a lot less. So just the like, Instagram is the main one. Cool. Sounds good. Listen, y'all, it's been Khalil Green. Thank you for coming, Khalil. I really appreciate it, man. Uh, to see what more new and upcoming episodes of Black Voices on the Hill for other Cornell and the Canoes, be sure to follow us at Black Voices on the Hill on Instagram. Be sure to follow WVBR FM News on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and visit us at our website at wvbr.com slash Black Voices. Listen, if you want somebody on Black Voices on the Hill, be sure to email us at bvh at wvbr.com. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Overcast, or you can tune in right here on WVBR 93.5 FM every Friday at 2 p.m. And the podcast releases on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Listen, you can tell Alexa again, you want to listen to Black Voices on the Hill. We'll see you next week. Shout out to my executive producers, Mike Sites and Grace Fairchild. Peace out.